Hello, hello, hello. Welcome back to the Cyclist Magazine podcast brought to you in association with Sportful. I am your host, Joe Robinson. Joining me at the other end of the mic is Mr. James Spender. Good day, mate. And the reason for that slightly terrible Australian accent is because today's guest is the winner of the greatest race of the 21st century so far, Mr. Medi Heyman. That's right, the 2016 Paris Bay winner, if you were wondering what race we were referring to. But before we get to that, we're going to talk you through some of the things that we're liking and not liking in the world of cycling right now. James, good to see you again. We've both got we've both caught a little bit of the sun. We have we're both looking a bit tanned. You know, fifteen degrees in the UK, and suddenly everyone's got a bit of sunburn because we can't look after ourselves. Positively balmy. I'm always always amazed at how quickly a British person can get sunburned. It is very it's it's quicker than most cycling races. Yeah, but it has nothing to do with that. Didn't make any sense. <laughs> well, no, it didn't make any sense. But it ha- I feel like it has absolutely nothing to do with the skin colour. It's literally just to do with determination. As soon as the sun's out, it's like, right, where can I sit down and stare at it? Exactly. And it will be in a garden, a pub garden, yep. the park, you know, even but a bus stop. Yeah, that's the thing. Beer is not sun cream, even though it doesn't, it feels like it's really helping at the time. Talking of beer, though, since we last met, pubs have reopened. Gardens, pub gardens to be specific. We're not yet back indoors into the warm hug of a, of a country pub yet, but... I'm going to assume that one of the things you're liking recently has been the deliciousness of a poured pint. I have enjoyed a poured pint or three. Um, the first one, I opened the accounts this year with a Guinness. Same here. Really? I, same here. Yeah, because of all the alcoholic beverages that you can get in a pub, I think the Guinness is the one you can't replicate at home the best. You can't, yeah. It's true. It's so true. you can, I crack open a can of lager, a 1664 or something like that, and it, you know it's near enough the same, but... Guinness, even the the cans with the widgets in, they don't quite replicate what it's like in the pub. No. So So there we go. Delicious though, isn't it? It is delicious. Did they serve it in an actual Guinness glass? Because I get annoyed when they serve it in non-regulation glassware. No, it's in a regulation, strict regulation, official Guinness. Guinness uh, Guinness World Record sanctioned Guinness glass, I would imagine, uh, brought out to a table. Well, I mean, that's enough about pubs. We should also say that our standards are slightly higher than Guinness, Cronenberg 6064 and non-branded pub crisps. But at the same time, those are the things that, as you say, you can't really get um, from a supermarket. That, that experience, that slightly lowbrow, good old British pub experience. And they're the things that we live for in these heady days. I mean, what else so, have we got left? Exactly. Other than, obviously, cycling. So we should probably talk about cycling. A close second. A very, very close second. Uh, yeah, I mean, so that was something I did do, is go for a ride and have a beer afterwards, which just that beer tastes absolutely off the chain fantastic. Um, but speaking of chains, that's the thing that irked me, is dusting off the kind of summer bike. Which I do use the term loosely, but it's basically the bike that's got like the least hardy tires on it. So getting that thing out, and I've done a really good job cleaning it. What I had failed to do is lubricate the chain. So oh, only is that because you, you? I'm guessing you'd clean the bike, clean the bike, and then left it to yeah. dry, and then forgot to re- revisit to lubricate. Joe, are you watching me through a ring doorbell? That's exactly what happens. I know. I know that's what happened because that's what happens every time I clean my bike. Yeah. So, but what happened was I didn't detect the squeaks for for some time, or they didn't manifest for some time. Uh, and I'd gone on a pretty long journey, and I found myself pretty much uh, 50k from A and 50k away from B. 
Um, and all I had was uh, a hot cross bun, which I'm still eating my way through because they've been in the freezer. But I put peanut butter in it. And I just thought, do you know what? There's a little bit of kind of oily peanut butter left on the foil that I'd wrapped it in. So I tried to lubricate my chain with that. Needless to say, peanut butter on a chain doesn't work. Didn't stop. There, was there no was there no Tesco Metros nearby to get a little bottle of Filippo Berrier? No, I did think about that. And once upon a time, I have uh, gone into an Italian cafe and got the little sachets of olive oil. But we don't do that in this country. Uh, we got ketchup and mayo, but even those they cost money now, don't they? So that was off the card. Luckily, I, I pulled into a um, uh, a moped garage and got and the guy gave me a little can of spray oil. So I would suggest as well that one of the things I do like is the kindliness of strangers um he really hooked me up that that fella uh, at the same time i then really looked quite hard at this bike and realized that there was a split through the jockey wheel um which i don't know how it was holding itself together so it was making an awful clicking sound so all in all a bit of a kind of a sketchy ride but we made it round in one piece me and the old swift so happy days moving swiftly on uh joseph do tell me what you don't like um, in the world of cycling, or just in your life, you know what's what's dragging you down, man. Well, to tell you what I don't like, I'm going to have to start with what I do like. What I do like, James, is the return of the Wednesday night ten mile time trial um, because of restrictions in the UK, in England, lifting. We are now able to return to the the sort of holy club ten. Um, mine, the local, the Bexley ten, records held by a former pod guest Ben Tullet. Um, Amazing little 10-mile time trial past Brands Hatch race course. It's basically five miles uphill, go around a roundabout, and then five miles downhill. So it's really, really bloody hard. Um, but why I'm loving it so much is because it's given me an opportunity to really put sort of anger through the pedals of that rebuilt Chinelli that I sort of sussed out during Christmas. And most importantly, it's given me an opportunity to ride a pair of Campagnolo Bora Ultra 50 tubular wheels that I'd immediately originally put in the bike and then realised was stupid because you can't ride them for more than 50 kilometres without fear of them, you know, puncturing and then you being stranded in sort of yielding or cockseath. So I only put them in for the time trials on a Wednesday. But, oh, my God, are these wheels incredible. They are super stiff, fast. They are light. Honestly, you've I know that you've ridden a pair of them before, and I genuinely think, and we say this is like people ask us, how do what's the best way of me improving my bike, improving my performance via my bike? And we always say it's you know upgrade your wheels. That's where you'll get the biggest sort of performance gains. And these wheels, so I have a pair of Fulcrum Quattro Four wheels that are you know real nice carbon wheel, but just swapping out between these two wheels, I think I'm sort of sort of saving like two or three kilometres on the sort of the uphill out leg and then four or five kilometres on the way back. They're that fast. Yeah, no, I'd say they probably are. Um, also, they'd be easily 200 grams lighter, or maybe even three. And they're tubular. So anyone who's ridden a set of tubular wheels will know that they, they corner just remarkably better. Like, you know, the old, old phrase that they corner like you're on rails. Um, they are that good. The only issue with them is, is they are two and a half grand, James. They are. This is true. They are, which is a lot of money um, because for that two and a half grand, I found a 2004 Saab 9.3 for the same price. Uh, two doors, convertible, automatic, two litre engine, petrol engine, four seats, only had two owners, has got a full service history, 75,000 miles on the clock. And 
it's being sold. The, the owner is in the Isle of Wight, so you'd get a lovely day trip to Shanklin out of it. Plus, yeah, plus if I was to use that Saab at the Bexley 10 on a Wednesday night, I'd do the course in about eight minutes, whereas at the moment I'm doing it in 28 minutes. Beautiful. Well, no, I'm with you on those wheels. They are two and a half grand. That's a load of money. They are the ones that Joe has, in case anyone really is interested, are the older model, the outgoing borrowers. So you can probably pick them up a little bit cheaper than that. Um, and just, uh, you know, my two cents from riding a bunch of bikes and some of them have uh, you know, had have had things like lightweights and Reynolds razors, the RZRs, which have the carbon spokes, you know, they are up there as the, some of the stiffest wheels going, the campy borrowers. And although they, yes, they are over two grand, they're also half the price of wheels that they are as stiff as in the form of nothing against lightweights or, or Reynolds, but those borrowers, I mean, damn it, they are smooth as well. The hubs and those things are absolutely incredible. I met someone who swore by the fact that campy wheels are rounder than everyone else's. They are rounder than everyone else's. If you zoom in on them, there's no there's no edges. He said that he only rode campy wheels because he could he could feel the fact that they were more round than anyone else's yeah. wheels. So I think they 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 absolutely are. Uh, um, and I'll also trade you for something that I like really quickly. It's just Chinelli leather bar tape. We do keep banging on about Chinelli. It's not, it is by accident. We've got this Chinelli leather bar tape. It's been knocking around for ages and I eventually put it on uh, Put it on this summer bike and it just looks really nice. I probably added like, yeah, about 50, 50 grams, 100 grams. I probably tripled the weight of the handlebar by adding that stuff. But uh, it just looks really good and it will age. Leather age as well, doesn't it? Not one for vegans or vegetarians. Let's, you know, let's not leave them out. But it, it just looks lovely in this kind of honeyed, mottled honey colour so there's that leather bar tape excellent um, and one thing I don't like at the moment James um, is it, while I really enjoy doing these like, sort of evening time trials and everyone there is really like on the whole everyone's really nice and everyone's really inclusive and you've got everyone there from like old guys on their sort of steel road bikes to you know people there in the full gear disc wheels you know sort of skin suits the one thing I can't get around my head is the guys that the guys and girls that are quick and, and are quite clearly very good bike riders but persist and are very adamant to tell you that they're very slow and they're not very good at riding bikes and it's just annoying like stop self-deprecating because no you know okay i get it you did a tw- you did a like a, a 23 30 i had rolled in at 28 minutes 20 seconds you were five whole minutes quicker than me you don't need to tell me then that you were also really slow and on a bad day yeah if you beat me by five minutes yeah no i feel that it's just generally in sport that the uh, the, the pseudo self-effacing competitor that comes off the pitch or off the course kind of moaning shaking their head and you're like the thing is it's not even that you can't see the joy in what you've done it's that it's inauthentic because actually deep down I know those I've met those people and they know that they've done really well they just want you to tell them they want you to go no 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 you've done really well mate actually you're five minutes faster than me and and this one guy this one guy and I'm not going to name him but this 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 particular guy rode 50k from home to this time trial rode the time trial on a road bike won the time trial having beaten competitors are on team tie trial bikes so on more aero setups quicker setups and then rode home so he did like a 100k round trip but still found the time within that to tell us that he wasn't a very good bike rider uh, and the fact that you haven't named him but you've just pointed out he won it 
He did this <laughs> 100k round trip and he did it on a road bike. Anyone that's done the Bexley 10, uh, you know who Joe's talking about. But on that note, on that note, we'll leave this poor gentleman alone. Well done, sir, by the way, for being a champion and beating Joe because he needs to be beaten <laughs> here and there. All right, let's get on to Matt Hayman. So welcome on to the Cyclist Magazine podcast, Mr. Matthew Heyman. Uh, Matt, thank you very much for joining us. Um, how are you? And um, let us know what you can see out of the window closest to you. Oh, thanks for having me. Um, I'm very well, thank you. And I can see a nice sunny day um, in this part of the world um, over in Belgium for the Ardennes. So um, always, uh, always nice to have some good weather for these races. So what, what bit of the Ardennes are you specifically in at the moment? Oh, we're actually just right on the border between um, Holland, Belgium and Germany over near Vals, um, mm. which is in Holland. Um, but yeah, we're right on the border of all three countries there, um, which is fairly close to Amstel Gold, which was on Sunday, mm. um, and not too far from Liège and about 100k from Hoi for tomorrow's race. Because I assume it's been a long block for you with in Belgium, considering you've had the Spring Classics, mm-hmm. and then into the Ardennes. So um, my first question is, I hope you like Belgium, considering <laughs> how much time you have to spend there. Well, uh, I live there, so... Yeah. Uh, I live just down the road, so I'm only... Is that where you moved to when you came yeah, over originally? Yes, yeah, so I'm only 20k oh, okay. away, so... Yeah, I, I spent a lot of my career. Um, I started with Rubberbank and I was in mm-hmm. Holland for just the first couple of years. And then by the time I turned professional, I moved to, moved to Belgium, not far from the border. Um, I'm near Maastricht, which is um, in Holland, but uh, just on the, on the, the Belgian side. Um, and uh, been there ever since. So do you feel almost at home? Obviously, when you were a racer, you're, you're, you enjoyed riding in the spring, which was again in Belgium. But as even now, as you're a, a DS, obviously, with Team Bike Exchange, yeah. do you feel almost like it's a home race when you're directing... Oh, for sure, for sure. So I, I know those races, I know the roads really well. I live here. Um, you speak the language. Uh, so, I mean, as a, as a DS group, we um, all of us have our kind of, um, you know, different roles and different races that we know well. And, um, you know, there's other guys on the team. Um, Matt White kind of heads up everything, but we've got other guys that have their speciality as well. They've, they've raced in a certain country or they've, they've lived there and, and they've got contacts and it's not just what you're doing in the car, it's, it's everything else. It's, it's always good to have some people on the ground that have some contacts. Before we uh, came on, you said you were out this morning doing a recon with the team. Mm-hmm. I've always wondered, what, what kind of things are you, are you looking for? What changes year to year um, in, in a race course like that? Are there any surprises, yeah. um, things that you, when you were racing, were like, wow, that wasn't the same thing? I think I did 17 recons of Roubaix and not much changed there. <laughs> <laughs> Could have told you before I went, but... Uh, Oh, this, this has changed a little bit um, and definitely, you know, last year with the program being shifted around, a lot of guys either didn't ride or we had some different riders in so they might not have ridden it for two years and then, you know, it's one of those races that's in between and, and if you're preparing for the Giro, you might not do this week. So, um, you know, and even for the guys racing when we're racing in Flanders, uh, you know, Tour of Flanders hasn't changed much in the last few years but we still go out and the guys might have even raced a race you know, three days before that uses the same climb, but they still want to see it when we enter from the left-hand side or how long is that? How big does that road feel um, on the way in? Um, what, what am I looking for up the road as a, as a point? Okay, the traffic lights is where, where we turn right or, you know, that white house is 300 metres before the corner. 
Um, so just trying to look for some of those things. Um, bit of information about which way the weather might be tomorrow. The wind will be from your left-hand shoulder. It'll be stronger than this. With something like, so obviously you're in the Ardennes at the moment and you ride amp. So you've got Probanche, Peel, Amstel, Fleshalone and Liège, lots of climbing. How hard, and, and you obviously have been on thousands of recons in your life, how hard are riders going on those those climbs? Because obviously, it's all well and good being like, okay, this is La Redoute, but La Redoute rode at fifty percent, and La Redoute yeah. rode at half, a full is is a completely different but kettle of fish, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Look, today um, a few of the guys wanted to go. We got a couple of guys came in fresh, um, so they're going to do it a little bit different. Uh, this is the day before the race, and we we had to be there actually for some COVID tests, otherwise we might not have made the trip. Um, um so yeah look we tried to keep it to a minimum it was only 50k um and yeah look they they dropped most of the most of the people who try to jump on the back of them they dropped them on the next climb um but for them they went took it pretty easy a couple of guys did some hit outs a couple of other guys were happy to come and have a chat on the car um on the steeper climbs because they they trained yesterday so um and then look if you're going to do if you're going to do a roubaix and 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 you've got you know, a whole week between, then it's a proper training session. You might need to do mm. four hours and, and you want to really hit some of these some of these sectors on, in Roubaix, for example, with speed, on your race wheels, with the, trying out a few different pressures and you're going really quite hard. I mean, um, it's quite a quite a solid session, a, a midweek Roubaix uh, recon as opposed to the day before the race recon where we're just really looking for a key point or a couple of key things that, that you might want to see. Because I How saw much? there was a, a sorry, I was going to say there was a clip of you may have seen this, Matt. Walt Van Aert the other week recon in Flanders, <laughs> yeah, going up the Quermont. Yeah. Uh, I think about forty k an hour. Scared, scared <laughs> me. I, I don't like, know what I did to the other guys. Because it's quite often you actually see like KOMs on Strava have been mm-hmm. set not in in the race, which even to me I know that it's a slightly different thing, but you think in the race it's just another level. So it's quite yeah. impressive. I find that a rider can bury themselves to that level when they've not got a race number on, probably got a snood on some gloves. Yeah, I think um, they're, they're looking, they've always got to, um, you know, they're, they're in top form um, and it's a little bit of that, uh, you know, you, you want to be reassured that your form is great, um, feeling good. Um, you want to open the legs up, you know, uh, I always like to pop out, I think, before some of the big races, if you, you know, pop out some peak powers, even if they're only the mm. short ones, it's a sign of form. So um, it's hard to kind of, if, especially if you're raring to go and you're really confident, it's hard to keep it in on, on those recon days and you just want to want to show off a bit, I think. When you were racing, how much did you feel incumbent upon yourself to know about a course? And how much did you kind of think, well, they'll just tell me, I know we're going and sit through a PowerPoint this morning on the team coach, but yeah. I'll just look at my phone because I'll find out when I need to find out. What's that kind of split of responsibility? Yeah, look, I think it's it all depends on the rider. Um, some guys really want to know what's coming up and they really need to know. Uh, some of them will do their own research themselves and there'll be other guys that uh, are happy just to kind of cruise around and, uh, you know, yeah, really, really don't mind uh, just just finding out from the DS on, on the way. And, and, uh, and also for me, it's hard to give information because I can't give information for everyone. I've got a guy here who might have ridden the race 10 times who doesn't need to know something. And then you've got a neo pro who's never been there before who, who might need to more of an idea about what's, what's coming up. So, um, yeah, it really depends. And, and uh, you know, in recent years, we've got more and more 
you know, opportunities to use data and, and maps and Google Maps and, and uh, we use VeloViewer on the team. And you can really dig into that. Like if I recon a stage as a director, um, you know, surprised I didn't do more of it as a writer because I can, you know, recon a stage in another country and, and, and get there and feel like I've been there before. Because yeah, I was, was going to ask, what kind of rider were you then? Because you had an incredibly long career, you know, 19 years, three, uh, four, four really big, three really big teams. Yeah. Um, and you also went through the process of seeing technology kind of come up with cycling from the yeah. early 2000s. So how did your approach to the kind of racecraft theoretical knowledge start off when you were a neo pro how did it change by the end and were, were you someone that flew a bit by the seat of their pants or were you very calculated you know i guess i started the same thing you know you cut out the stage profile put on your handlebars i uh, went through a period there of not riding with a computer at all um just knew the feed station was about halfway um and then of course the power meters came in um but it was only really towards the end of my career that the that the Garmin's and the, and the maps and everything kind of came into the bunch. And, and it was something that I adopted towards the end of the year. I really liked to have the map uh, more than any of the other information. I think I rode my last tour to France oh, wow. just with the map. So I knew which direction I was going in and, and uh, kind of could check, check another screen for altitude for the big climbs. Mm. Um, but I was more interested in knowing, you know, maybe kilometers to the finish on, on one side and maybe power, but, you know, really kind of limited data and, and more have an idea of where I was going. So, so that was, yeah, and it really, really it kind of changed that everybody can, you know, it, when you, when you have all that knowledge of the, the courses and everybody else can gain it without actually going through those years of being a professional um, kind of, you know, the guys can catch up. You can have a guy that's only been pro for a couple of years and you can really look into a course as much. And I had to go and write it five times to learn it. So. What it, what it also means is that you don't have to do what a former director sportive of yours used to do, Sean Yates, and get up at 5am <laughs> to ride the day stage to then come back and tell you about it. Have you ever, have you been tempted at all, Matt, to uh, to get up in the early hours to go ride uh, uh, the full 200k of Flesh Rallone? No, I had uh, Sean as a director and uh, I believe every word of that. Um, <laughs> no, uh, I haven't. Um, I did go and drive all the flesh yesterday just to make sure I knew it. Um, you know, if I'm going to call the guys, then, then I need to know the roads. Um, uh, but uh, <laughs> yeah, Sean uh, took it to a next level. I went and tried to recon a few of the, um, after I retired, I did a couple of the recons with the boys and, uh, you know, I might not have put on much weight, but, uh, I definitely don't train enough to go riding with the boys anymore. So, um, I only did that a couple of times and then I'll do it from the car now. You've been in the team car now a year, Matt. One thing that, um, and, and obviously you're driving in the, in the peloton, which is a completely different role to when you're riding it. And mm. I remember Dave Miller once saying that he, once he'd retired and he was in a he was in a car at a race and he had a pro rider sit on his wheel trying to get it back in the bunch and he said that he couldn't believe how close that rider actually got and because he'd been out of the peloton for like six months he's for want of a better word bottlewood completely gone and he was terrified of this person sitting basically an inch away from his bumper now that you're driving a car in the peloton with the sort of the flow of riders around yeah. you, has your perspective of it changed at all? Have you, have you sort of seen a rider hugging the back of a bumper and gone, how was I doing that when I was a pro? Uh, yes and no. I mean, I'm around it all the time now, even in the team car, you're seeing it all the time. Um, but your perspective is definitely very different. Uh, going from a rider to sitting in the car, 
Uh, I was pretty amazed at what I didn't know after 20 years of what happens mm. in a team car. As a rider, you, you've got, you know, got a lot more information coming in. You can see the other riders. You can feel the situation. You've got an idea of speed and, and, and how hard you're going, where you are. Um, and as a director, you know, maybe I'm getting more in tune with it now after a couple of years that can feel when, the, you know, the difference between driving a car at 40 or 45k an hour is not much in a car um, and, and really just looking for that feedback. And I couldn't look around and, and see the riders and have an idea of, of what was going on. So it took me a while to, you know, get in sync and, and have to kind of get your, your cues from, from other things about what's going on in the, in the bunch. So you are driving a car, right? Yeah, often, yeah. not always. At yeah, what point sometimes. do they go, here you go, Matt, here's the keys, jump in, jump in our sponsor's car and off you go? Or do you go on sort of um, motorsport style, uh, get your badges like they do for yeah. um, <laughs> things like Formula 3? What, how, how, you know, how, much, how good do you have to be to, drive, to be a driver? Well, so um, I finished in Tour Down Under. I got on a plane back to Europe and Whitey called me up and said, why don't you come down to do um, Musia Almeria? And I'll just run you through the steps. And I thought, oh, yeah, no worries. So, you know, he was he was a director there. And I came out of the bus the first day and he was sitting in the passenger seat. So I guess that's how quick you go from being a rider. <laughs> and I went, you're kidding me, aren't you? I better go and get my wallet. So what do you need a wallet for? So I oh, don't have my driver's license on me. He said, oh, I don't need a driver's license. Um, but I did actually go and do a driver's course um, because I felt yeah. as a director I, I needed to do something. I felt that it was irresponsible for me who'd spent most of his life trying to not drive cars and be chauffeur driven around and picked up from airports um, sitting in team buses to then be driving I mean the big thing is I know which way guys are going to go in a corner I know which side of the car they want to come on I know which how things work where crunch points are in a race where the lines guys are going to take Um, that you can't learn but um, you know it took me a little while to get my eye in on exactly how big the car was and i must say um the mechanics on my team lucky i was nice to them as a rider because uh they really helped me out if you've got eyes in the back of your head um mm. it really helps so for the first races the mechanics were actually top notch and and they were giving me a lot of pointers and and um spent a lot of the day using the mirrors and how how much of um how do you keep yourself like amused on the longer days and the calmer days because sort of i've been i've been lucky enough to be in the team car before at the tour of britain and yeah. I did it twice. The first time I'd done it, uh, there was crosswinds from kilometer zero and it was carnage and it was just noise in the team car, million miles an hour. And then the second time I did it, it was potentially probably one of the bo- most boring road racing stages there's ever yep. been because nothing happened for 190k. Um, how much are you having to keep alert on those sort of karma days? Can you switch off? Are you chatting to the mechanic about other stuff and yeah yeah 100 percent. yeah yeah there's there's lunch to pull the lunch out you do all these other things in the car and there's you know uh the you've got to keep i mean i've seen mechanics fall asleep essentially in the in the car but you will you won't know how quick they're out of the car and awake if they hear um the team's name on the on the thing so um there is a certain aspect of that but uh you can switch on pretty quickly um there's some long days if you go the giro i think the first year at the giro 220k stage two guys attacked at the very start and they got four minutes or something and the bunch stopped and i was second car so i was about car 40 or something and the mechanic turned over and put his head on the window and i thought oh here we go sun was on the windscreen and i really struggled i think i might have grabbed a uh, caffeine gel or two myself um 
which you don't want to be doing when you're not racing is having gels. Um, but yeah, really, really just struggled to stay awake. But then there's other days where six hours flies by and you don't get a chance. And there's in the classics, I barely even get a chance to eat anything and, and um, you know, just sipping water because you don't want to have to stop for a, for a nature stop at the wrong time. As, as Primo as Roglic is yes, director yes. sports, he can tell you very well. <laughs> how do your um, how do your stress levels compare? Have you um, stuck on a uh, an HR um, monitor and seen what your heartbeat gets to in a team car versus what it got to when you were racing? Like I imagine they must, yeah, it must just be an incredibly stressful environment to be in with all that stuff going on around you in this massive hulk of metal, and also you, you know you want your guys to win. How does that compare to when you were riding? More stressed or less stressed? Uh, different stress. Uh, as a rider, you don't really, once you're in the race, the stress is really kind of gone. You, you're in control. You know what you can do. If, you, if you're getting dropped, you know why, and, and you can feel it all yourself. But uh, as a director, you don't have that control. You don't know what's going on. You're pretty connected to the guys, and, and you're hoping, but you've got no real, you know, you're trying to pick guys out and, and, and see if they're still looking good, or if once somebody gets dropped, you're asking them how the other boys are going. Um, and you don't really want to, you know, ask the boys in the race, you know, how you're feeling because most of them are probably not going to be feeling that great, um, <laughs> especially in mountain stages or at the end of a classic. Um, but yeah, so there's that, that level of, of stress and um, still that uh, emotional roller coaster when you when you had a good race or a bad race, um, come into the room afterwards and and uh, you know feel like you're you're spinning a bit after a hard race with uh, a lot of action going on. You said previously that after like 20 years in the pro peloton you thought you had an idea of the life of a ds and then you will realize that actually it was so much more what's been your biggest learning curve in these like almost you know two years now i guess yeah look uh in the car maybe just yeah not not really knowing kind of what's going on and not yeah, you know, I guess as a rider, you think they're just sitting there watching television and it's the same as sitting in your living room watching television. But, um, you know, the race radio isn't always clear. The, the television drops in and out. Um, you're getting your cues from a lot of different places. So, yeah, not really. I figured that they, they kind of could see more of what was happening. Um, and then outside, um, you know, different teams are run differently, but uh, we do a bit of logistics. We do a bit of... You know, there's a bit of management of staff and general. I mean, there's a there's a leadership role as in you know you're leading a group of people and go to the Tour de France or go to the Giro and and you know I think my first time at the Giro second week I was doing logistics and you got twenty, uh, thirty people and 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 fifteen or sixteen vehicles that need to get from A to B every single day and as soon as you finish one day you've got a set of problems for the next day people coming in and out. Um, you know, uh, vehicles needing to be in certain places, uh, bottle points nowadays. Um, so all of that kind of logistics side of it, which I which I didn't know went into it. And um, now I made a pretty concerned effort to to make sure that I, you know, don't get caught up in that too much and leave the, mm. the one-on-one contact with the riders, which I think they enjoy, um, which they need and I feel I need to, to do the job correctly. Yeah, Brian Holm told us that his life, is 50% making PowerPoint presentations <laughs> and 50% fielding stupid questions on the team radio. Yeah. So, <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, we do a lot of PowerPoint presentations. I spend a lot of time on Excel doing room lists and, and, uh, flight schedules for people. And, uh, but yeah, I mean, that's part of it. And, and, and the other side is when you do go to a race, you know exactly what's going on, you know, where people are and you know, you know, it's, and, and I've got, we've got great staff here. 
Um, so it's a, it's a pleasure to work with these guys. Have you ever had that feeling though, where you're just like, I wish I was still out there. I would have done that thing differently. And if no, so, no, no, no. <laughs> so you're glad cause you, um, you retired in 2019. So that was a good, good point to retire, I guess, knowing yeah. that you were going to go into being, um, a member of, um, you know, a team's coaching staff or did that kind of land in your lap? It happened towards the end. Um, it wasn't really my goal. Um, and I guess, you know, I look now even, you know, what is my goal in this, in this job? And, and it's to, to give the other guys as much of my information and what I've got um, back to them. And I owe it to, to Jerry, who's the owner of the team. Mm. Um, you know, he gave me something pretty special. Uh, I got to ride on this team. I got to go and win Roubaix with this team. Um, and I got a lot of knowledge and I wanted to just, while I was still fresh and while I could, um, you know, hopefully help help somebody else to to realise in their dream in the first couple of years. Um, that was that was the reason for for really taking on the taking on the job. Yeah, I think it's a question that often occurs to me, and I hear people ask: is is ultimately, you know, without putting too fine a point on it, could you have a career like yours, win the biggest one day classic in the world, and then effectively retire? Is that you know financially viable is that possible beyond just would you go slightly mental not having anything to do uh-huh. but yeah. could you have could you have dined out forever on that cobble that you won in 2016 oh, uh, no probably not um i could get a, a little i got three kids um depends <laughs> right. what kind of, what, it depends what kind of education i want to give them and what kind of lifestyle i want to live um yeah look uh you know it was never in my i never rode a bike um to not work again it was never my goal um might have saved me early on in my career um it wasn't my goal and it never has been hello listeners it is joe here unfortunately at this moment in the interview matt had to run off due to a team emergency in the run-up to flesh for loan thankfully he was able to join us again two days later where we pick up the chat talking about the pressures that covid has put on the professional peloton at the moment and we get onto the topic of 2016 paru bay Heyman's biggest victory as a professional bike racer. So here's part two, and we hope you enjoy it. I turned my phone over, and there was a bunch of missed calls, and uh, it was getting right. worse and worse. It was Christmas tree. Oh. But I really need to attend to this right now. I know. What right. what what was it? Can you say? Oh, we just had to get some extra tests done. We didn't have any positives or anything, but we needed them done ASAP. How many how many um, PCR tests do you reckon you're up to now? Oh, 40, 50? And is it still the nose and throat? Yeah, yeah. Has it got any easier? Because we've had to do them. Yeah, yeah. In the UK now, we we were meant to be doing them sort of twice a week. Yeah. And um, they just don't get any easier. <laughs> Are you doing them to go to work or? Just in, just in, in in the UK, they just want to, they've just got oh. enough tests that they're just getting everyone to do it as soon as oh. much as possible. Yeah, because you do need you need a like only about a five or six positive rate uh, across the test. Otherwise, you're not testing enough people to to have a good yeah. idea of what's going on. Um, we're just it's but it's just a minefield because you need to. We've got UCI rules, we've got mm. government local government rules, we've got airline rules, and then you try. You don't want to do a test every day, um, so you try and squeeze them so they can be used for two different things so one's all right for the race but all right for me to travel home and get to the next race and be my day six for this race and then a day three and do that across 28 or almost 90 people with the men's and women's team then and then all you have to do is be like uae yesterday who had yeah three, yeah. three false negatives 
And yeah. ironically, they were all meant to have been vaccinated in the yes. UAE at the beginning of the season, yeah, so. which, um, which is yeah, uh, so. quite ironic. Yeah. It's <laughs> a bit a of a minefield, but it's, uh, yeah. The doctors are spending a lot of their time just doing filling in Excel sheets and trying to chase it, that Is up. it also hard? Because um, I, I actually live quite near Phil Lowe, who's the press officer for De Kernick. Yeah. Um, and he said that he's, because he's from the UK, there's like a bunch of countries he can't go with to with the team still because of yeah. travel yeah, restrictions. No, it's, it's very, very hard for some definitely um, from the UK, but I think that'll change pretty soon because of, you know, just because of the fact that uh, you guys' vaccination levels are up pretty high. We'll, we'll put, touch back yep. on to what we were talking about the other day. You came in cold to a Paru yep. Bay five years ago and it didn't matter much because yep. you won You won the 2016 Paru Bay having spent six weeks off off the bike, having broken uh, your, was it your arm or shoulder? What, what uh, again? Yeah, my well, it's a radius, so it was arm. We're just yeah. before into yeah, just where it goes into your elbow. And you spent six weeks with your hand, your arm sort of suspended on a ladder, <laughs> riding on Zwift um, to get fit, just to compete in Paru Bay. And then yeah. you didn't just compete; you ended up winning the biggest and best one-day classic in the world against the race, the race's greatest ever athlete, Tom Boonen. So. Uh, it shows that going into going in cold into Paru B is not necessarily a bad thing, eh? No, 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 not at all, not at all. Um, you know, I think one of the biggest things for me there, I was going in super fresh um, mm. mentally as well. Um, I didn't have all that baggage of the the weeks before of copping and beating in uh, in Gentwevelgram and Flanders, and uh, was just happy to be there, happy to be back on the bike. It was a beautiful day, tailwind, sunny. Um, and I was happy to be back back racing. So there was all that kind of extra extra motivation just to be there. The interesting about the the freshness thing you just said there, Matt, that you you felt mentally fresh, physically fresh, because you hadn't had that huge spin classics campaign. Mm. And I often see like sometimes Rubei, it does feel like the final slog for riders because mm. they've been doing that block since them. Mm. Do you reckon that will affect this year when riders will be at the very end of the season? So a lot of the guys you're Peter Sagan's, uh, even people in your team like Luke Durbridge, they won't be, mm. won't have had that six weeks of like flogging themselves twice a week across the cobbles in the cold. Do you reckon that'll have a big difference? Yeah, yes and no. Um, I think you'll see the the other side of it, which is the World Championships. You know, um, mm. it's at the end of a season, a bit of a long season. Who's who's done the Vuelta? Who's who's really invested in in getting good and getting that form for for the worlds or? who's kind of coming down off the end of a season and just adding an extra race to the program. So I think it'll mm. be hotly contested and that style of rider will have probably invested a lot of time and effort to be prepared for the Worlds. And if they take that through to Roubaix, they'll, they'll be in good form. But um, yeah, there'll be, a bit of, uh, there'll be a bit of guys that are a bit battle-weary by the time you get to October. But harking back now to that 2016 race, um, yeah. obviously, yeah, five years has passed. Yeah, and it's a completely different ball game to what us amateurs go through. But everyone has that feeling, I think, that nervous energy on some level, the morning before that big challenge. And I know for a fact that I'm always worried about what time to get up, what yeah. to eat, and how to set my bike up. So, could we start with that? Can you, you know, what does what does Matt Heyman do? What time does he set his alarm clock? What does he want for his breakfast? And what's he telling his mechanics to pump his tyres up to? Or is he actually doing it himself? Because it's that secret what tyre pressures we're running here. Yeah. Uh, look, uh, Roubaix, all the monuments uh, tend to start pretty early. Um, so we were, start, we were staying out of town 
I think we had a bit of a drive into Compenia, so it would have been a, a seven o'clock uh, wake up, or if not earlier. I was in the room with Jens Kokler, so I had the fold out bed because he was team leader. Uh, he was on the double bed, and I was on the on the couch in the Novotel. And then, uh, yeah, you just, as the boys say, strap on a feed bag and start shoveling food in at uh, six fifty in the morning. Well, whatever you need to get down. Um, you know, it used to always be pasta. I remember as a uh, as a young pro just having pasta and sprinkling some sugar on top, try and get it in early in the morning. But uh, nowadays, um, you know, we, we use a lot more rolled oats and, and different things, even add some fruit and spices, which were <laughs> never allowed in the early days. But, uh, you know, exotic things like avocado in the morning. Um an omelette normally, a bit of protein, uh, carbohydrates and protein, and then uh, on the bus to the start. And uh, as far as the bike setup goes, yeah, I um, I went out on a limb that year. So we, I don't know, there's kind of two different stories there, what I'd normally do for Roubaix and, and what I did this year. Uh, bike setup, I don't change much for Roubaix, you know, double tape or anything like that. Um, and But I was pretty particular about tyre pressure and, and running the tyres, and I felt like that was where a lot of a lot of the comfort and a lot of the feel came from from the bike. Yeah. Um, as far as changing handlebars or, you know, maybe I slide the bars out a little bit, um, get a bit more perch on the, on the hood. So just tip the, tip the drops down a little bit. Um, just so, yeah, if you were bouncing around, you didn't, your hands didn't go off the hoods, just a bit more of a relaxed position in the bars, but that was, I didn't do that every year. Um, and then, yeah, going to the tyre pressures, whether it was um, three and a half, four bar, it depends on what tyres, what bag tyres, uh, what the weather was like. Um, you know, we've run different tyres, different years. So were you still on tubulars at that point? Yeah, we were still on singles. Um, and and, which, and what was the, what was what tyre size were you using? Because obviously now it's like 32 is pretty standard. Uh, 30s. T- 28s or 30s. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Um, and then depends what they're, what they're measured at. I mean, what? what the manufacturer says they are and what they're actually measured at um, uh, sometimes a little bit different, but that's where we spend the two days on the recon uh, the days before running them. And I think you really got to get careful because recon's done at about 30, 35 K an hour. And um, you generally do a lot of cobbles and you keep letting the tires down. They keep becoming more and more comfortable. Um, <laughs> and you think, Oh, this is great. I've, I've reinvented, I've reinvented Roubaix here and I can run three bar and this feels great. Uh, then you realise um, the race is 40k an hour, and there's there's 200k of road. Um, mm. So I've I've been stuck in Roubaix with some some flat tyres before and really struggled on the road. Um, so it's yeah. So and then come to 2016, I said um, just ride the foil, which is a full aero bike. Put some mm. 60 wheels in, which uh, you know I remember standing on the start line and Heinrich saying, "Oh, so where are you going to change your bike?" And I said, "No, man, I'm riding this to the finish line." He thought I he thought I was joking. Uh, he was on the same he was on the same setup, but he had another bike to to change to. Oh, so really? He, yeah, he was going to do this first 100k on the same bike as me, and then he was uh, going to change to a different to a more relaxed bike uh, with a bit more give and, and smaller wheels. And, uh, you know, I just said to mechanics, put in whatever you want. Um, I'm sick of, you know, I used to pump them up myself and I just said, do, do whatever you think's best. So I actually don't know what I rode on that day. Oh, really? And what, what about um, gear choices? Do you, do you mess around with that too much or not really because you're just in the middle of the block and, you know... No, they, they, they sometimes throw a uh, 42 or 44 inside chainring just because it's mm. dead flat all day and... Just in case the chain falls off on the cobbles, uh, it's a bit closer, a bit bigger chain ring. Um, 
sometimes some years they've had a bit of a chain catcher in there um that's not on all bikes um but the gears are pretty standard. There's not much to do there. I've chucked a chain on uh, at Roubaix. Not that it would have mattered because I won't. <laughs> <laughs> but I can understand yeah, why you'd have a chain catcher. The best of us, it happens the best of us. I know. In my other room, I forgot to grab it today. I actually have a cobble from 2016, Samadhi, the 11th of April, because I did it the day before you and rode the Sportif. Um, but I didn't win a cobble. I bought mine for 25 euros <laughs> from the guy in the um, Roubaix club shop. Yeah. But uh, so I've got that pride of place, like I'm sure you do. That's that's the question, isn't it? Where where do you keep your cobble? Because uh, I think doesn't is it um, Cancellara or Boonen hasn't kind of inset into a sort of uh, display case in his incredibly fancy bathroom. I'm sure yes. other people have it over their nan's mantelpiece. I don't know. Where's your cobble, Matt? I have it in the living room. I have it in yeah. the living room. Um, I've got an alcove in the living room, and there's some little spots on it, um, some photos of the family. But uh, nowadays the the kids push it aside if they build something nice with Lego or they bring something home from school, it gets pushed down the side, gets a bit dusty, gets a bit forgotten. <laughs> um, you know, it's still, uh, you know, I guess it's, it's, I see it every day. So I kind of walk past it now, but uh, every mm. now and again, like a few weeks ago, I had a painter come in to have a, to have a look around and he's like, had to do a double take and saw it. So every now and again, you'll find somebody who, who then clicks and says, wait a minute, is that, can I have a look at it? Um, I'm like, oh, yeah, go, go for your life. <laughs> is it as heavy as it looks? Because I've seen a few times riders go, oh, actually, yeah, this is, um, <laughs> yes. this is a proper problem. Uh, I, I need to – I've been asked this a few times, and I, I did put it on the scales once when I was contemplating taking it back to Australia in hand luggage right. and wondering whether, you know, I wanted to leave it in the Middle East because it, it wasn't allowed on the next flight. Um, <laughs> but I, I think it's above 16, below 20 kilos, but pretty heavy. Um, so it looks pretty small and it, they leave it on the podium. So it's just at your feet. And um, <laughs> then uh, next minute you feel the urge to put it above your head. And first, even grappling, it's not easy. Um, mm. At least I had someone with a bit of experience there, Tom, to help me if I failed. But, uh, and then, yeah, you've you got to get it above the head. And uh, I picked it up and thought, here we go. Um, I can't fail now. So up she went. We're not known for our uh upper body strength bike riders but uh that's an awfully perfect storm you've broken your arm <laughs> just held onto a, a you know a jackhammer for six <laughs> hours riding this bike over cobbles and also you're the first the first person to demonstrate that an aero bike was a suitable ride or kind of didn't really matter so long as you could just pilot the thing um yeah. on a race on a race like Roubaix. does scott ever get in touch and say by the way thanks matt here's five percent of all of our subsequent foil sales because you put our bike on the map i have a good relationship with scott um scott and zwift were both pretty happy on on that day um but uh yeah look i did a I did a ride uh with some guys with scott uh before the tour de france a couple of years ago and uh when the tour started in brussels and i was riding with one dealer and i don't think he knew who i was and um he finally worked it out and he said, oh, my God, I've got a, a little shop in Belgium. And uh, after you won that, I sold three three foils in, in the next week. So, oh, wow. yeah, it's uh, – but, look, I, I, I believe, too, that, um, you know, the evolution, I go back and look when I was racing in, in the early 2000s in that race and riding on, um, you know, kind of open rims and, and uh, maybe 23 bag tyres. I think the, the biggest change has been the technology and the tyres. Um, what, mm. what we're doing with tyres these days, um, you know, you mentioned tubeless and and all the different size rims now and, and, and what they can take. I think that's that's been the big game changer as far as, and that's, you know, 
limited to people trying trying with rock shocks and 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 flexing in there. You can do so much with a thirty mil tire. There's there's so much comfort in in that amount of amount of tire that um, I think the rest is you know you just want to go for. for oh, speed. I do miss the rock shock forks though. <laughs> the nineties, they did look good, didn't they? There is some strange bikes being pulled out. Do you jump at any of those sort of stuff? Like there's bikes now with suspension systems like specialized um, Roubaix and stuff. But if you have been a pro, would you have been like super keen to use this new tech, or would you have been? Because I've spoken to some guys who are like, I don't want to touch it because I saw what happened to um, George Incapi that time when his steerer snapped. Um, Yeah, no, I I probably wouldn't be, um, to be honest. Um, Mm. uh, And and definitely, yeah, like I said, with the tyre technology. Back in the day, I think we we used to throw in some forks with a longer rake, just make the wheelbase longer. That was the theory was that the longer the wheelbase, a bit more comfort, a bit more suspension in a fork that had some rake on it. Yeah, that was all right. Um, no, I probably wouldn't jump at, at riding any kind of suspension in Roubaix. Do you have it's conversations gonna... with t- with your with your riders about tubeless tyres for um, for the classics? Because that's something that I think occurs to a lot of amateurs. Is like this is a great invention in as much as these things don't tend to roll off rim if they're flat, and also far less susceptible to pinch flats in a yeah. similar way to tubulars. But obviously, you don't have to go back and unsew the things and you know patch up yeah. a tube or, or spend a lot of money to fix them but i would often wonder why they haven't been adopted or it seems tubeless hasn't yeah, really may... been adopted in the pro peloton they're definitely on their way they're they're on their way and, and there's a lot of um development in that area at the moment um so i'm sure that'll be the you know it'll be coming in i guess um the extra weight with any fluid in there um you've got the run flat thing so everybody's kind of in the test phase at the moment and um i think you know i think that'll be something and i I really don't have any you know i don't have any know-how or knowledge in that area um and definitely i know that you know even on our team we've got a couple of mountain bikers are like you know they don't understand why we're not already there um (laughs) you know they just they don't get it um but it's coming and and there's always there's nuances between mountain bike and road and and we've seen that with uh with disc brakes we've seen it with with the hydraulics it's it's not the same it doesn't always just cross over um so i think it will be there i think it'll come in um and yeah we're we're on the way to to seeing where that where that'll go as well and the last thing on paru bay before we move on to your career more generally matt do you know which rider you competed against most in your career can you give me a hint nationality you stopped him from becoming the most successful Paru Bay rider of all time. <laughs> um, it must be Tom Boonen then. Yeah. So you, I, so I did some dig, digging before this podcast, and it turns out the ra- rider you raced against most in your career was Tom Boonen. And guess who beat me most in my career? <laughs> <laughs> it's quite a serendipitous that your yeah. biggest career win came against the guy who you technically competed against most. You know, I, I need to mention that the the way that Tom carried himself after me beating him, um, you know, he's a guy, well, he's won everything, world champion, he's a, he's a national hero and he's been beaten by someone who's a relative unknown, um, mm. especially in, in mainstream sport in, in the country that he comes from and to be able to get off the bike and shake my hand and, and you know, he's got a whole team behind him that have ridden all day and, and supported him that he has to go and face in the bus and say, well, how do you get beaten by this guy? 
Um, and he said, you deserved it, mate. You won it. I mean, he was the one who could feel his legs and had to react mm-hmm. to the attack in the last K. And he was very gracious. And he was even somewhat, you know, he said, this will change this guy's life. I've already won it. This this is great for this guy. And, um, you know, a, a lot of respect for, for somebody and, and, and also for Tom's career in general. I mean, he went through, it's not easy being, being, um, uh, worshipped in Belgium as a bike rider I don't think it's mm. it's not a life I think um you know I, I remember speaking to him not a year or so after Roubaix and, and he actually said he wouldn't mind being able to ride on a few more years as a as a relatively helping the team or just as a road captain without the pressure of results but he didn't think that that would be possible for him where I was oh. able to ride into my 40s because you know there was no expectation I was going to if I lined up at Roubaix that I was supposed to win it and anything less would be uh, would be disappointing. So it was nice that he was so nice on the finish line. Were you kind of aware of that presence? Obviously, you know who's with you in those last kilometers of mm-hmm. a race, but were you aware of that kind of the gravitas of what was unfolding? And how did you just deal with the position you're in and the potential outcomes? winning or losing how how did that psychology play out in those last couple of k i think uh stanard helped me a lot there by knocking me off the road on cuff for the last have, you, have you forgiven him for that yet i have i have um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, my mum hasn't but i have um, so uh you know getting back on there um kind of changed a lot for me because i did feel my race was over i was i was dropped from that group and at that point i'd given myself i was hoping to get fifth you know hoping to hold on and when I rode back onto the group, I kind of changed my mindset from that point on and, and felt a little bit more in control and, and uh, you know, I had that little bit extra. So from that point in, um, yeah, it was a bit of a shift for me and, and once I kind of changed that mindset, I started to see a bit more clearly that all these guys wanted to win and, and it wasn't really mm. up to me and, and, you know, we had Sepp who was, you know, has been still knocking on the door for that big win. Is the eternal, you know, um, strongest man in the race without without winning the big ones. Um, you know, Ian's shown in the past what he can do in a final. When he gets a sniff of a win, it doesn't matter who he's up against. Um, when he pins the ears back, he's hard to beat. Um, and you know, I've I've raced with both Ian and and uh, Edvold, um, and I know. I just know, you know, how talented they are. Edvold, you know, he could win. <laughs> he could lead himself out in sprints and win. Um, so, you know, I was able to sit back there. And, and once I got back on, I was able to just say, oh, look, these guys really want it, really needed a lot more for me than me. And when I had nothing to lose, I, I you know, kind of became a bit more dangerous in that situation. And um, to be honest, I didn't feel the gravity of the situation. You know, I've, you know, I feel more, a lot more nervous going into the final of a race in a team car than I did being on the bike. Um, I felt pretty in control, but not really thinking, oh, I'm in the final of Roubaix and it has to happen now. I've got to do everything right. And, and I was not stressed at all. I was just kind of there and someone attack, I'll follow that, go over the top. It was just like racing, racing the local chain gang. And you became a Paris Bay winner, which means that you join a very exclusive club. And a, and a really revered club, especially where... So you live in Belgium now, Matt. Yep. In terms of your life, like going to the supermarket, going to a bar, do people go, that's Matt Heyman, Perry Bay winner? Because it is that huge of a deal in Belgium, cycling. Yeah. Um, so how think... much does it? do you get recognised? How much do you get revered? And do you, have you ever actually been... Has anyone ever been annoyed at you for denying Tom <laughs> and his fifth Perry oh. Bay? They all mentioned they don't mind me winning, but 
<laughs> but um, uh, so um, yeah, look, I was pretty keen straight after the race to to do an interview in Sports Star in Dutch um, yeah. because I didn't want my house burned down. Um, <laughs> but uh, by the time I got home, my my neighbours had all um, painted the street um, with white oh, wow. paint. Um, you know, Matt Matthew one Roubaix and. Um, I think they invited the uh, the local mayor around and got a photo with him holding a paintbrush just in case they got into trouble. Um, and uh, look, oh, I get uh, recognised every now and again. A pandemic has helped with me being able to go a bit incognito if you're wearing a mask all the time. Um, it's more in a cycling environment. Sure, if I if I rock up to 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 a race in Belgium or or something around cycling, um, and it's it's nice to be recognised for that for that result but um, my life is not by no means um has it changed in, in much uh, as far as i can still do everyday things in belgium and that's the thing obviously we keep dwelling on it but your career was so much more and so much longer than one day um finishing up on a concrete velodrome it's a it's it's spanned nearly two decades and this is a stat that i've just nicked off joe he did some cracking research before so you've raced in 25 different countries um, including Hong Kong, Japan, China, 128 races and 169 different teammates, give or take. And Paris-Roubaix definitely sounds like one of your better days. But talk us through your worst racing experience. What was the worst hotel you've stayed in? What was the most disappointing result? And what was that day where you're just like, I just want to forget this? My worst, my worst experience, that's pretty easy. Uh, that was the 2000 and get it right now i'm pretty sure it's 2014 is that when the tour de france started in yorkshire yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah 2014 tour de france um i'd pretty much moved to to green edge uh orica to to ride the tour de france and get maybe a bit more of an opportunity in the classics after being on sky and mm. i was selected for the tour we started in yorkshire and um i had to pull out of the tour de france so i'd waited 15, 14 or 15 years i'd never ridden the tour before that um, made a change the teams um, and got to stage nine or ten the day before the rest day and we're in the uh, around uh, Mulhouse in the Grand Ballon uh, that area and it was just a filthy stage the day before I was already on my knees I was in struggling squealing in the Gruppetto and only just made it in and the next day <laughs> again um, just a series of you know five to eight kilometer climbs and I think it might have finished on. Uh, Plan the Belfies, and it was just an excruciating day. And I got dropped, and I was riding by myself, and I had a team car following me for hours on end. And and um, eventually, without <laughs> me even knowing, I just clicked out. And my first Tour de France was a DNF, and I'd waited 15 years to ride Tour de France. I wanted to be, I wanted to get to Paris, um, and I just wanted to hide. I wanted to not be there. I wanted, to, and it took me a few months to get over that. Um, I mm. questioned everything. I questioned my ability, and um, you know, later we found out I, I was a little bit sick. I had some issues. I had some health issues I needed to get, but that didn't change anything at the time. Mm. It was the pain I went through of, of spending all those years wanting to get to the tour and having to get off. Um, uh, as far as worst hotels, there's too many to name in. Uh, <laughs> I, can, I remember one or two good ones, but uh, no, nah, look, uh, we're pretty used to it. Um, I think we're pretty resilient as, as guys. We enjoy the good hotels and, and just expect the bad ones. Uh, so there's been a few hotels. Now, I don't know if anyone's got a stats on the number of hotels I've slept in. <laughs> it'd, be, it'd be an awful lot. You could do, 
you could do a really good version of TripAdvisor. Yeah, I, I do know, you know, I go to family or when I'm visiting in Australia and you'll go to someone's house and they're like, oh, hope the bed's all right. And, and you know, I said, the bed's all right. And I sleep in a different bed, you know, uh, 100, 120 days a year. Um, mm. I've normally seen a lot worse. You do get some nice hotels, though, when you go to like um, Canada or um, the far, uh, the Middle East, for instance. Middle East, that yeah, must, no, it, does that really make a massive difference when you turn up and it's like oh you're in the the palm hotel and it's five star and no there are some super there's some super and i think you know most of the bike riders will admit you know we're we're all enjoy the travel uh you can't do this job without not enjoying that travel so um yeah there's some 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 great hotels um a few years we got to stay in a really nice one in the center of hamburg for hamburg classic but uh now they're using the holiday in the airport (laughs) um of those twenty-five countries you raced in that we mentioned, uh, which was your which was the, your favourite place to go race? Not necessarily for the parkour, but just because of you got to visit that place. As a, the guys as a are going to probably laugh at me. Um, I, I, I like Japan, um, so we've done Japan Cup a few times. I really yeah. like the culture there. I like the food. Um, yeah, so I've been there a couple of times on holidays. I just think it's a you know such a different place um i've enjoyed going there so uh japan's been good and 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 the u.s is different you know just the 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 fans and 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 being there we've done a couple of training camps before doing california california is also a nice race and i'm sure there's a lot of europeans that say the same thing about tour down under um Mm. so yeah you know once you've done europe a lot um it's nice to go and do something a bit exotic another question is a bit of a trivia question for you so the 169 different teammates you had in your career do you know which one you raced with most? Stephen Young. He's second behind oh. Jan Boven. Ah, oh, yum. Both of them are directors and I run yeah. into them in the cars. Uh, I try to avoid them, but uh, as in with <laughs> the car, I try to avoid them. But uh, no, both very, very good uh, teammates and and, um, and both at the top of their, as, as directors now. Mm. Um, uh, Jan uh, does a lot of races with uh, Wolf and Art and... Um, mm. At Jumbo Visma and uh, Stephen Dion is, is a head DS at, uh, at Trek. Who was um, throughout your your career? Not your not your not the best teammate you had. Who was the the best person to have a, have around, or just was a bit of enigma in the team bus? Was there anyone who was just a bit sort of you knew that you were on a race with them? It was going to be a, a good laugh post and pre race. Oof, that's a good one. Um, oh, there's lots of personalities in cycling. I guess if I went for um look uh I, I think a few times now when i'm talking to the younger guys uh some of the stories about oscar Ferreira come up um oscar was you know i think some of it got out but he was just you know super super talented world champion mm-hmm. but also uh, you know he'd forget his shoes and he'd come to races with the wrong leaders jersey on there's there's hundreds of stories you know and moving on we had a great great team at sky and you know i really enjoyed hanging out with g and and, and luke Rowe and uh swifty and, and really that first couple of years we weren't winning as much and we weren't we definitely weren't a grand tour winning team in the first year mm. um and that sprint classics team we had we had a lot of fun uh it was really good times there and of course we did nothing but laughs here <laughs> <laughs> now you moved to uh to europe like a lot of um, young professionals, really, really young. So you were 17, is that right, when you when you first skipped over and sort of Four. set up as a bike racer? I came over as a yeah, 17, 18-year-old to, to join Rabobank Amateur Team. Um, but I even came over once as a, 
a junior. So I was a 15 or a 16 year old. So before, or maybe even earlier, my brother was over here racing in Holland and I came over in the school holidays to race, which was at the time was Newlinger, which I mean, might be under 15s or under 17s. I'm not sure all the categories anymore. Um, but that was an eye opener coming from Australia where you, mm. where there was two, two of us in the cycling club, me and Mick Rogers, um, <laughs> the lining up in Belgium with, with 60 guys every day. Um, you know, every second or third day in Belgium and Holland, there'd be 50, 60 guys, my age racing. And it was just next level. So yeah, pretty early. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting one actually that you just raised there. That the fact that, you know, Australia just doesn't have the cycling culture that, um, continental Europe has at all. And that's not just going to be difficult if you come over to start racing in Europe. It must have been relatively difficult growing up in Australia where it's short shorts and smashing into each other, chasing round or like, you know, oval objects is the kind of uh, nature of the sporting beast. How, because we, we, spoke, we spoke to Jai Hindley um, yeah. on this podcast and he said, you know, I did get quite a bit of flack from my schoolmates how was it for you growing up saying i want to be a cyclist and shave my legs and wear this tight clothing yeah no definitely um shaving your legs was a big one in australia um so no it's not a mainstream sport at all um and so but i think that's reflected in in the level of the guys that come over because of the commitment that you have to make um mm. so f- First, I think the two big things is is the the coaching and the training and that that kind of whole side of thing. Um, the level that we have there is is you know these guys were doing it in Europe, but mm. they were just going to school all week and they'd pull their bike out. It was like like you know going and kicking the ball down the park. Um, this was a race on a Wednesday, but I would already been you know as a second year junior, I think I had one week where I was doing seven eight hundred k a week on the bike as a 17 year old and going to school full time because I was training for the junior world championships. So there was that real focus and that real kind of Australian where we really um, into the training and, and it wasn't just a passage of life. You weren't just doing it because oh, you do, you do cycling and you do soccer and you just move on, which, which we have with, with cricket and football. So anybody who does venture over has already made a pretty big commitment and been ridiculed at school for years for shaving their legs. So if you can take that, you're probably going to be able to make it to the Tour de France. And do you think there's a, a kind of a similar psychology though amongst all Australian athletes? Because obviously we, we know from uh, our English side of things that the Aussie cricketers have got some seriously kind of malevolent psychological tactics in the middle of a cricket game um they obviously refer to it as sledging is there is there something similar that goes on around australian cyclists because i've heard that richie port and i've met him as well he's he's an outspoken yeah. loud loud guy and um yeah. apparently you could often hear cadell evans over the top of everyone else uh in the bunch so is that a trait that you share or you notice in your compatriots i think we've got I mean, we've we've had our run of run of different athletes. I think we had a, a real run of sprinters there, you know, mm. with that whole Stuart O'Grady, uh, Baden Cook, um, Robbie McEwen. I mean, they were all they were fighting each other, and you know that was quite, <laughs> like, you can't do. You know, we've there's only so many of us over here. We 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 used to stick together, help mm. each other out a little bit, and and yet these guys were robbing each other of wins and and hooking each other into the barricades. So um, there's you know they're definitely that. Um, you know, that kind of hard Australian, oh, I mean, I think there's personalities. I think you have to be a bit special to do this sport in any way. So um, I don't think you can really, you know, box Australians into one category. And if you can, I don't fit into it. 
Good answer. And what what's the most underhand tactic you've come across in a competitor? Because we've heard stories of, you know, Sean Kelly back in the day, just kind of pouring out a bead on full of water on a hot day and just throwing it to the side oh, just okay. to prove a point. <laughs> I mean, there is, there is a bit of, um, I, I think I had a couple of guys mention the other day that, um, you know, they were scared of me when I was on other teams and I come across pretty, pretty quiet, but um, I get a bit of a, uh, Bit of a hot head in a race, especially if I don't think something is is correct. Um, yeah, I felt like there's unwritten rules in the bunch, and you don't break them. Um, and racing's racing, and it's hard, but um, you know, there's a point where where you don't go past that. And I felt like sometimes I needed to police other people, which is not correct and not right. But as far as trying to intimidate other people, I mean, you know, everybody's out. I, I feel pretty passionate about. I'm here to do a job, and I'm here to win a race, and I have seven teammates, and that's my priority, and it's game on. Um, and yeah, if that's intimidation, then maybe I've maybe I've intimidated other riders. To finish, so we'll let you get back to. Um, obviously, you've got Liège on Sunday to get prepared yep. for, which is a big day. You had um, like congratulations, Esteban, who's actually yeah. smashing it at the moment. Like really yeah, no, good at basketball. Really well, really well. Really good to see him back racing like he was. I am personal fan of the backstage passes from years gone by. So always been a big fan of um, Esteban. And thanks to Backstage Pass, I must thank you all because you introduced me to Dale Braithwaite, <laughs> who I'd never heard of before because he's just a, an Australian, like one hit wonder, right? Me and my friends love, <laughs> love horses. We think it's oh, I'll uh, pass that on to Heppy since uh, uh, yeah. to, to be starting Rebay and, and have Heppy put that on and, and play it at top level. I I'm, I'm just don't feel that's right. I think that there is underhand tactics from an Australian. <laughs> <laughs> sabotage his own teammates um, i'd never heard that song before and now i'm it's just relays in my mind after that zonkel on stage and now <laughs> like whenever we go out and we see like a jukebox in a pub or go to a karaoke bar like <laughs> obviously pissed i'm always like have you got horses Dale braithwaite and the guy looks back it's like i've never even heard of that guy in my life <laughs> he's that um he's Top about as it's a good thing as obscure as Chesney Hawks, uh, yeah. james in the uk oh mate it's i love that i love that track um <laughs> Well, um, we've got some quick fire questions for you. Yep. Just to to come off the to, but um, obviously you you race Swift, you love Swift, but esports cycling champs, are you for it or are you against it? For for it. Okay. What's that next one, James? Short, fast, or long, slow? Also training. Would you rather be smashing through a single day race or a multi stage race? And when you're training, long, slow, yeah. or just I should get it be done? I should be saying short, fast, but. Uh... It ends up anything I'm good at, it's long, slow. Um, look, uh, I think short, fast racing is, is the future. Um, but uh, I'm a traditionalist, so training was long, races are long. And Roubaix or the Tour? Roubaix. Is cycling too long? No. No. Good. Okay. It is if it's 200 kilometers along the Italian coast where there's yeah. no crosswinds. Yeah, and I'm falling asleep <laughs> in second car. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, favorite cycling jersey, past or present? Oh, good question. Oh, world champions jersey. The the rider you looked up to most as a kid, Miguel Indurain. Nice, good answer. And um, the worst bike you've ever ridden? Oof, I've got this bike my brother gave me from his bike shop that I used to get to to kids to school and back. Um, mm. The back wheel is missing about eight spokes. It's a bit <laughs> chunky. And my son is actually pleading for me to get another one. He thinks it's going to break in the middle of the road and I'm going to get hit by a car. Fastest speed you hit in a race, do you know? Yeah, above 100, somewhere yeah. in Switzerland. Yeah, I'll It's always there. Switzerland, isn't it? 
scary when you when you do it and you look down and see that speed and then you start to think about what could happen. What would be your last breakfast? Coffee. Just a coffee. And a croissant. <laughs> One of those curly croissants with the uh, raisins in it, you know, the snails. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. With the kind of like custardy yeah. sort of yeah. like, yeah. There you go. No, good. Uh, yeah. Fair, fair play. You've got, to, you've, you've got to crack on. It's time to leave Earth. You haven't got time to mess around with a long no. time. No. <laughs> okay, there we go, James. That was Matt Heyman. Uh, pleasure to chat to such a lovely man. Over t- the longest podcast we've ever done, obviously. We make note in the interview that we had to stop halfway through because he had a sudden team emergency. We took bets on what it was. Um, I I won the bet, as I said. It was it was definitely down to sort of COVID testing. Yeah, uh, I, yeah. I was I was wrong. It wasn't that he just wanted to get out of the interview and not not finish it. It turns out it was genuine. And um, <laughs> yeah, thank you very much, Matt, for coming back to give us way more way more time than we're expecting. So cheers for that, man. Yeah, came back two days later to talk us through his Paris Bay win, which is which is always a pleasure, not a chore. Um, I'm pretty sure Matt Heyman's probably been asked in the hundreds now to recall that victory. Yeah. But he doesn't seem like he's growing tired of it. And I don't think he should. No. Because it's the, you know, in my opinion, it's the greatest day of cycling racing annually. So to say that he won it. And he won it in such fine style. Yeah, precisely. Very unexpected. Um, but I like, I do like it when you hear those sorts of stories. And one of the features being, it was just the day where I just kind of went, do you know what? Sod it. I'm just going to... Roll, roll out. I'm not gonna because he, you know, he mentioned he wasn't even really invested enough to be specking his own tire pressures, which yes, does sound desperately finicky to someone who maybe hasn't sort of uh, been around the Paris Bay um, circus. But it's you know is so absolutely crucial to that race that it's not that finicky. Every rider has their own special tire pressure, secret tire pressure. So anyway, the fact that he was just getting out of bed, getting on his bike, and going for a ride, and he won it. I just I love the idea of that because it makes me feel like maybe I could do something good one day. He let fate take hold, James, is what he did. He did, yeah. And I and I think what that made me think and what that made me realise is life must be really hard as a mechanic in a pro team because I bet you there are loads of, like Matt sort of alluded it to it there, that you know he did 18 Peru Bays, 17 Peru Bays, and for 16 of them he was you know down with the mechanics, making sure that he had the right, tyre pressure in. I know of other riders that are very pernickety around their bike setup in the classics, whether that's sort of second roll of bar tape, um, going for sort of the sort of weird, is it cantilevers that they have on the tops of the bars for braking so they can brake on the tops? Yeah, in inline brake levers, yep. Yeah, a lot of riders will do stuff like they'll, you know, they'll want a chain catcher added and only run one by or they'll sort of have their sort of normal 53 tooth outer ring, but then they'll have a massive sort of like 49 tooth. So if the chain does drop, it doesn't sort of drop down into an actual small ring. So the the life of a pro mechanic in the lead up to Paris Bay must be really stressful and made even stressful, more stressful by there being certain riders who are sort of so anal about their setups and also think that they know as much as the team's mechanics. Which I would sort of argue, I don't know, I know what you're saying, and it must be difficult for the mechanics, but equally, this is a stat that someone maybe can tell us. I don't know how many mechanics race themselves and how much of, yeah, I know what I'm doing in terms of a bike setup and how to set it up, but do I know what I want the bike to feel like? 
maybe those are two different kinds of things. I I always have a lot of respect for riders who push their mechanics, who push the kind of mechanical envelope, as it were, who take the time to understand things. And I, yeah, granted, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. And I'm sure there are mechanics tearing their hair out as we speak with someone asking them to do something stupid that they disagree with. Equally, I can't help thinking that cycling is one of those awfully traditional things where people just love dragging their heels. And I can quite imagine like a mechanic talking a young neo-pro out of tubeless tyres, for example, saying, oh, well, you know, it's got to be this, that and the other because that's what we've always done. And that mechanic maybe being somebody that could be more open-minded. I don't know. But um, as I say, I don't actually know any top pro mechanics. So I don't want to be besmirching their entire trade and craft. And there are some amazing ones out there, clearly. And it's a thankless task, you know. Imagine rewrapping bars every single day on... You do hear of reports of, like, for example, it's notorious that the among Movistar that have predominantly Spanish mechanics, they would never run lower than sort of 100 PSI, um, even on wet days. And it's, and it's said that when Alejandro Valverde crashed out of the Tour de France in, I think, 2016, when it was the opening day's prologue in uh, Germany... Uh, it was because they basically ran him at like 110, 120 PSI on his tyres when everyone else had sort of dropped back down to like 80, 90 because he was absolutely howling it down with rain. Um, and I and I don't think, if, from my knowledge, I don't think there is any proper top World Tour riders who have gone into becoming a mechanic. I think the mechanics are very much, that's been a lifelong job for them. And for, for every like traditionalist in the mechanics truck, who refuses to, you know, accept, like refuses to do tubeless tyres or to experiment with lower tyre pressures, you probably have got a rider who is just an absolute nightmare to work with. And I think a case in point is like, take Eddie Merckx, who's the greatest cyclist of all time, um, and won over 500 races and won every race there was you could win more than once. And was, you know, a sponsor's dream, a team manager's dream, and even probably a mechanic's dream because he was winning for them and repaying all of their efforts. He was notorious for being an absolute pedant about his setup and about his bike. And even Eddie Merckx can own, can tell a man only so many times that his saddle was not at the right height without it getting irritating. I can imagine that. I can imagine that. He used to cycle around with the Allen key in his pocket, so they say. Exactly, and he he um when he was right because he, he had people make bikes from all through the years, you know, from Ernesto Colnago through to uh, just whoever was in the Peugeot factory at the time. But when he was riding bikes made by Hugo De Rosa, De Rosa was supplying him with fifty bikes in a season. Fifty bikes is insane, it's a bike a week. and the, it's a bike a week. And the guy was making them, and he he'd build one, and then Merckx would be like, "Yeah, can you make it basically the seat tube like two mil higher?" That kind, that sort of level of, and and with his hour record with Colnago, Colnago reckons that just before he was about to go, this is like nineteen seventy two Mexico Stadium. He he was like, "Can you change my bars?" And it's like, "What? We're literally just about to go, and you're asking me to change the bars." So those are high stress situations. But then I think, then the, conversely, if you're the mechanic and you do those things for that person, and you win, and again I suck thinking about um, having spoken to Colnago and also to Hugo de Rosa, 
Merckx would be somebody who would always share the champagne. So swings and roundabouts. If you're doing that for a champion, you'll you'll literally do anything. You'll you'll stitch his, you'll you'll darn his socks overnight. Do you know what I mean? But I can imagine if you're like, I don't know, mid mid sort of mid ranking team, mid ranking rider, you would just be like, it's 110 psi, mate, or get out. Yeah. So the moral of that story, then, James, is basically if you want to be picky. Uh, you have to be Eddie Merckx. You have to win 500 races in your career. Otherwise, don't ask the mechanics to do things out of the ordinary. Yeah, exactly. And if you want to be really picky, it's 525 races. <laughs> well, yeah, you can be. Um, that's the end of this episode, everyone. Let's bring it to an end there. Let's all get back to doing other stuff with our life. It's much more important, like taxes and you know, day-to-day work, going to Asda. Could I just add uh, one little note of thanks that we've been meaning to do for a long time? We've had our producer... Lindsay Riley working with us for does well, how many episodes now? A lot of it, more episodes than I can remember. She does a fantastic job and she puts up with having to edit our stuff. So, um, Lindsay, thank you. All of our rubbish. Chat <laughs> yeah, how do you edit nine hours down into something resembling more like an hour? Uh, no, so thank you very much, uh, Lindsay Riley. If you liked this episode or you liked Cyclist Magazine podcast, make sure you like, you share, you subscribe, all of the above because we'll be very very grateful for that um but in the meantime join us again in two weeks time where we'll have another guest and we'll be talking about other stuff in the world of cycling um and yeah james i'll see you in a bit mate you will (laughs) 